Welcome to the fourth episode of Navigante. We are now in uh, Amsterdam, in the uh, Netherlands. Our guest today is Thijs Witte. Hello, Karina. Hey, welcome. I'm Thank so you. happy you're here. We have been friends now for many years. Like a decade, I think. Exactly. I think we met in 2009 or 10 or something, Crazy. right? Yeah. Yeah. And you were studying at ASCA, right? What does it stand for? Well, it's like um, a research school for cultural studies at the University of Amsterdam. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked that school. Like, I was really impressed by people that was in and also like the willingness to combine like art and theory somehow together. And I was impressed by this. And also you guys that I met during that time when I was studying choreography were really interested in society and activism and art and wanted to combine it Yeah, I mean, I agree. I had a great time then and we met because we organized a festival together. I honestly had little to no knowledge of dance, contemporary dance, choreography um, or about political arts. Um, but you kind of pulled me into it. I think it's actually also because of you that I ended up teaching at SNDO, the school where you were uh, a student at the time. Yeah, that's right. I, I dr remember I dragged you into one production. Yeah, you corrupted me. Exactly. This is all your fault, girl. Yeah, but I think we, we, we kind of bonded on some books that we were interested in at the time. I think I was just finding Deleuze and Guattari and Agamben and you had already read that a long time ago. So somehow I felt like um, we are bonding around it, but also I could I could also feel that you were a certain source and I could I could be a speculative being in that somehow. Nice, yeah. I mean, to me, you were much more like, I was interested in the way that you could activate a space by just being there. And you had such a concrete, hands-on approach to how we organized stuff for the festival, how you spoke about ideas, um, your politics, your ethics, which was actually quite distant from the kind of people I was hanging out with at uni. Um, so I guess that was my initial appeal. I mean, I just liked you from the start. Mm, just, yeah, I liked you too. Vibe. I uh, Yeah, but for me, like, activism in Amsterdam was... Um, something a revelation somehow like in I don't know in Stockholm where I went to high school for example I was not very much invited into the autonomous spaces yeah you have to like make a social career before you do that but in Amsterdam somehow you you're needed so people were just very generous and you were one of them I think and also like queer activism in Amsterdam it was very playful at that time <laughs> long ago yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no but it was like new but also a willingness to not to just make sharp lines in between yeah people and society and politics but well, uh, it was also happening around the time where it was just before it gained some sort of like mainstreaming effect where today it's much more common to come across people who you know might be very liberal or don't really have a strong political conviction but are fully comfortable with the language and the jargon of queer 
lifestyles. Um, I guess that mainstream effect was something that was just happening back then. So it was kind of still unexplored territory. We still had a lot of explaining to do to ourselves. We still had to figure out what kind of um, politics is exactly was. It was mostly about feeling how we connected with each other. And also, we just hated mainstream LGBT activism which didn't really exist. It was already institutionalized at the time. We just we came together initially, I think, because we just hated mm-hmm. the gays colonizing the discourse about what is good and what is bad when it comes to and that that discourse was um, was dictated by capitalism. I mean, it still is, and it's it's even worse now. I think a really bad development over the past decade with queer activism and how it's been co-opted um, is precisely this. It's just been regurgitated by the market and you get just dumb shit sold to you as woke. Yeah, and that's just annoying to me personally. I stopped caring about the language and about the, the jargon precisely because of this. It was sort of increasingly an empty shell. But also, like looking back at it, maybe we were 20 people generating a lot of social capital, a lot of um, discussions. We were also from different backgrounds and different skill sets and yeah, coming together. And For sure, yeah. But uh, thinking about like just a little group can do so little also. I mean, there was a time for it uh, with energy, but... Wait, did you just say that we did really little? It feels very little. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a legacy yeah. here, baby. Yeah, I know, I know. But no, I know what you mean. But it was also cute because it was so containable in a small yeah. place. And honestly, we also just wanted to have a good time. It's kind yeah. of like we we hate we hate gay parties, so let's have a like more interesting queer party. But we were also very naive somehow. We were like I mean, I was twelve at the time. You know? <laughs> No, I mean, we were young, yeah, we, we were, were like young. sweet and naive and it was super pretentious, but we learned a lot. We got a lot of friendships out of it. And I think the, the queer festival that we sort of left maybe five years ago has gone on to become an amazing meeting point for marginalized groups that we didn't belong to. Because let's be honest, we were also a bunch of white privileged yes, we middle class kids with trust funds mostly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that has transformed into a much more potent and helpful space for people that truly have something to fight for and need spaces for unified action. Um, so that's really cool. Like we, we sowed some seeds. That's how I think of it mostly. And here we are. Here we are. You would consider, how? what is your title? How would you put your own title on yourself? Teacher. Teacher. That's what I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I usually introduce you as a philosopher. How do you feel about that? Really embarrassed. Why? Really embarrassed. Well, listen, I have no formal training in philosophy. Like I studied literature mostly, and that is adjacent to philosophy for some historical reason. A lot of post-World War II philosophy ended up in literature departments, not really in philosophy departments. So I'm proficient, I guess, Mm -hmm. in a lot of stuff that people recognize as philosophy. But honestly, like, I wish I were. I mean... There are a few philosophers that I truly love and that I enjoy reading and studying and learning from. But philosopher to me means mostly nothing. I don't really identify as such. No. No. Because I studied 
to become an artist and I, I fi- try to find different ways for art to transgress into different places and, and very often my artistic uh, projects very much feel like entrepreneurial projects but that's also there there is something in it, a certain embodiment of structures that I, I very much uh, like and enjoy but it's somehow hard to trace like the artifact in it or to show it in a theatre but I try to find ongoingness in them in order to make them live somehow but um w- the thing is that in when i'm among artists i'm usually the smart ass you know i'm like the one um the moral gatekeeper i'm like i know the books that people speak about maybe i haven't r- read them all but at least i can somehow relate to them i'm s- more or less or at least like i have i i defend myself a lot through articulation and speech and you're capable that's the way. yeah maybe but when when i'm with you you are the theorist you know so oh, uh, then i i come you you kind of reduce me back to m- me being an artist yeah i mean i get what you mean but listen honestly that's about about confidence i think or like feeling like you don't have a license to speak in the abstract um because to be honest like i came to the theory or what I think you mean by theory because I felt like a loser and reading and writing theoretically gave me some weird sense of entitlement or a stronger sense that had a grip on things, on complexity. So I was really interested in history and I've always loved historical narratives, Um, but I was so shit at it. Like the difficulty of weighing every fact on a golden scale and then figuring out all the minutia before you can say one tiny marginal thing i just couldn't do it i like i sucked at it whereas with theory like if you like start talking generally about you know subjectivity and and affect and uh, and orientation um it was much easier to produce and it was much easier to get passing grades so honestly i think theory i came to because i felt like a loser with you know the proper academic disciplinary education that was offered to me which is by the way it's not that i'm saying that theory is for losers but i do think that many people come to theory because they feel like they lack proficiency in more robust ways of making knowledge or understanding things i think i like theory because it gives you a feeling of almost understanding something and of participating in stories that are very distant from your own that's the abstraction about it that i enjoy but at the same time i also realize that it's when it it's done badly it is just awful it's a travesty i mean when artists for example try to illustrate a theoretical idea like a a concept for example where the art illustrates a concept it's just have you ever seen it done right i don't think so it's just fucking dumb um, but then at the same time, if it's done really well, if an art creates, you know, some kind of concept or idea out of its own permutation, then it becomes really interesting. Or when theorists think new thoughts through art, um, narrative or fine art, you know, that's interesting stuff. And that's something that I've always been interested in and to this day am involved with somehow. But somehow, like, it makes me think about that art and theory are two very contemporary practices like both of them needs to maintain a certain time Mm. 
or being behind like it's a bit both of them are a bit neurotic subjects <laughs> it's absolutely neurotic it's pure neurosis i think people's desire for artistic creation and people's desire for theoretical creation is neurotic in nature and that's fine i mean i wish i was dumb and pretty you know that i could just enjoy netflix all day long rather than mull over the fact that you know we might not have answers to the nature of existence i don't know you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean but what do you mean with contemporary contemporary as in now 2019 in the way that like both our practices need to be in a certain time like we we talk about like someone's idea being old school or who Uh who wrote um a story to that reacted on that and like like the the theory that i read around the choreography or my own practices is very much in in a line art too like Mm -hmm. artists are terrified of becoming old or losing their references so i think it's also about um maintaining that universe and i think that maybe art and theory really needs each other in that sense because of the neuroticism the the need of the discipline to point out something contemporary maybe that part of it i wouldn't call neurotic but um paranoid maybe Mm -hmm. like this anxiety of becoming old school or part of the old rather than the new i'm not sure if it's that much of a problem in theory so just disclaimer like by theory i think i mean roughly ways of understanding the world through language conceptual language um, and to structure the Mm -hmm. world accordingly so to provide models um, historically Um, but honestly like there are of course fashions in theory cultural theory in particular is prone to famous people attached to a cluster of important concepts that somehow circulate and then people are anxiously foraging for adjacent concepts so that they can either build a career of their own or just feel like they're part of something urgent and necessary so that will be the contemporary thing but then when you look closely at what these concepts provide you with most of the time they're rephrasings of stuff that Spinoza had said 500 years ago or Kant um Kant (laughs) I don't know who that is (laughs) um but he sounds awful no what i mean is that um i think it is capitalism rather than theory or art that makes us believe there is some sort of need for contemporariness all the time all the great ideas were already thought a thousand times over and recorded if at least a few dozen times by people who had access to <laughs> scripture throughout the historical record and what i enjoy about theory is to become involved with those histories and mm-hmm. to build further with them you should always ask what does it allow me to do can i do more now that i have uncovered this choreographic principle from x or y source or does it just give me the same old stuff with a new word mm-hmm. um, that is i think progress for theory and that is i think what artists are mostly looking for when they try to theorize or contextualize their work how does art affect theory actually well like a very standard and generic answer could be that all art influences theory like thinking about techniques for example i mean the history of art making the social economic contexts that produce certain kinds of art were highly technical in nature so the invention of a certain machine 
to facilitate new ways of turning the table for a sculpting uh, practice would then influence what styles could be thought of, conceived of and realized. Um, so, of course, art influences theory always by that it's a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. um, but in this more particular way that I think we're talking about right now, it's, I think, when art produces feelings, effects or emotions that trigger new thoughts. So someone I really enjoy reading is uh, Brian Masumi, an effect theorist, and he's very generous in the way that he justifies or um, explains where he gets his concepts from. Um, many of them are uh, artworks uh, or artists or the stuff that artists are up to. And that's a feedback loop as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe a bit more abstract than, you know, like looking at how uh, a painting studio creates new technologies of easel painting. Um, but yeah, for sure, that is... Art can be a muse, maybe, um, or an oracle for thoughts that haven't yet fermented. Um, so it can sort of push thinking in new directions that... Um, thought couldn't do alone something like and that and also often it it proposes real in situation marks real real examples of an event that theory can deconstruct or analyze or relate to or thinking about the philosopher or the theorist and the embodiment of it uh, do you want to add something from uh, like the what you said before about that you it made you feel less like a loser sure <laughs> i mean so it's easier to get away with things if they sound abstruse. I think that's mainly <laughs> mainly what made me feel good about it. Um, no, but uh, jokes aside, I think that um, there's this story of, I don't know, it's like some, uh, some Buddhist monk who's training a young apprentice to look at a mountain and to look at the mountain until the mountain stops being a mountain. Mm -hmm. And the apprentice does so, and after a week or so, the student, the apprentice can indeed no longer see a mountain. Um, that's kind of the degree of confusion where I would advise everyone to start reading theory. When apparent things become hard to understand, opaque, theory is often both the reason, like we, it makes things that aren't so complex weirdly complex all of a sudden to the point where they where mountains are no longer mountains but then in the same gesture when you complete the circle of theoretical investigation the mountain becomes a mountain again and that's the lesson so that's the apprentice's lesson um, you must study and abstract until the not mountain becomes a mountain again mm -hmm. and I think good theoretical study does exactly this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would relate it to like embodiment. For example, like when you're a dancer or a choreographer, and when you you embody something else or the other or something that you're not or qualities that you lack, in order to become that. And yeah. when you became that, you you come you have to exit it. It's also like I read some chaos magic rituals and they are the same that you need to uh, create a ritual and you need to decide how many times you repeat it. And when it's over, you need to you need to choose a time when it will be over because you need to get get out of it in order yeah. to either go back to yourself or form a new being or the nature of it um, is exactly that. Since you are constantly generating something in the procedure of practicing theory or practicing embodiment, you will 
come somewhere else. So it's not, it's not only a loop, but it's also a generative, um, expansive place too. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, what you just said about it pointing to someplace else, that's maybe a good comparison with why theory is helpful. At its best, it helps you realize that nothing is the sum of its parts. There's always this remainder, this excess, that for all the reasons in the world, good or bad, we usually don't really see because we chunk reality into bits so that we can organize them and then we can reproduce them. And oftentimes we're also told that things are just the sum of their parts. Theory is kind of a rebel. It reminds you that something more is always out there and it's worth pursuing. Um, Mm -hmm. That's also just a different way of saying that it should be joyful. I think a lot of theory, unfortunately, has been yoked to the tradition of critique, negative critique, so endlessly deconstructing shit and showing how everything is terrible. But that is only a first step, you know? I mean, it's helpful and you can't see the something else, the something more. You can't point a finger anywhere if you don't know how wrong the bubble is that you're trying to point outwards but it's a first step the point of theory should never be to sit on your little throne and be happy with yourself because you've deconstructed something to shit much the opposite that's that's the f- only the first preliminary step of creation but i also have to say that as an artist or when i was studying to become a choreographer why like did you study that karina i studied at school for new dance development is that this snao that i keep it's hearing this, about it's the sexy school the sexy contemporary mm, school all those hot able-bodied exactly luscious muscle-packed the the market bodies the contemporary choreographers that can perform and create and are freelancing out of like institutional powers or or companies or they are fun i need to get a job there (laughs) you you had a job there oh that's true but i quit no hard feelings though Love SNEO. But I remember that... Time to move on. I mean, why why you started to t- teach her in the first place was that I told the school that I'm tired of secondary philosophy. Like, I'm tired of getting philosophy from people that doesn't know its source. But <laughs> somehow... So then you proposed me. <laughs> yeah. The but secondary philosopher. Exactly. If no, there but, ever was No, but one. at least, like, I mean, you have an academic degree in theory. You know how to L-O-L. read a, a philosophical book. No, I think you projected so many fantasies onto yeah, me, I and I did, did, and I just didn't didn't deny any of it. We tricked the system. Yeah, we pulled course. a fire island. What what was it called? The fire but festival on all those people. Exactly. And but we got away with it. But High five. I think that you at least what you did that you were pointing towards the books for the students to read rather than explaining them in dance language, which was happening for me a lot uh, in school, and I felt like. I was manipulated into doing in a certain way rather than yeah. thinking in a no, certain I mean, way. I, th- I get what you mean. And also that's, I really enjoy doing that exactly, that more dry or um, attentive approach to the literary origins of ideas. Um, it was lovely to have that amount of freedom and the openness and the inquisitiveness of the students at SNEO is like you don't really see that level of seriousness and attentiveness elsewhere there's something special about that place when it comes to yeah the students that it um, that it serves so yeah the philosophy classes there were definitely fun and adventurous and uh, troubling in a way that wouldn't ever happen in 
a university seminar, I think, no. I think to, to learn like conceptual art within the dance education and not the usual narrative of dance that like hard work can redeem you. But if you actually like, if one of the first lessons you learn is uh, conceptual uh, art making and dance, which is like a, a very established art genre in Netherlands, it's mm. a very specific thing because yeah. in, 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 in Stockholm where I'm based, people still redeem themselves through hard work. Learning that can, can, can teach you a lot about how to think in order to do um, in a certain way that and also articulate like articulate yourself as an artist is also a very important thing in contemporary times of when you have to do a lot of administration applications you need to wait are you telling me that i was there to make them better entrepreneurs of course but i mean there is <laughs> there is no there oh is no way God. out of it I think I mean theory mm. is theory is part of the entrepreneurial artist. I mean if you can reference the right places yeah, and true. things and that comes a lot from the visual arts of course yeah, like Yeah, that's true. It's fucking depressing though. But I I I had it's taking me so long time to build a good bridge between art and theory. It's just like now it's coming to me i'm i'm writing a master thesis right now and i i need to what's the subject the subject is around phenomenology and um it's about third culture kids and uh like you and uh, yeah exactly like me one chapter is on third culture kids another chapter will be on uh, like white hegemonic places and the art produced within that can like a specific art that can be produced in white hegemonic countries i'm gonna make an example of an artwork in switzerland that i saw and uh, actually the the third chapter will be around neurodiversity and the senses and um, and like it can be possibly a very problematic uh, bridge between like black studies and neurodiverse theory and I also, um, I mean, phenomenology as a topic has always been something I very much like, but it's also a very contemporary thing, like ar around fem uh, among feminists and um, yeah, and choreography, of course. Yeah, yeah. it's I mean the most robust yeah. concept of embodiment you could find, probably. Yeah. Don't you find it sometimes a bit boring though? How phenomenology justifies and understands the world. It seems so descriptive at times. Yeah. It's more like it's very hard to disagree with, but then I sometimes end up feeling like, huh, I learned nothing new. Yeah, it's a way to kind of square things. Yeah. But I think also like the the production of uh, dance choreography is exactly that to find mm. the container where it belongs. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a good descriptive language to understand embodiment and movement and the world. But then there are, at least in the lineage of people renewing it, actually can like and add different things to the mix or to the soup, mm. like Sarah Ahmed adding on, um, adding phenomenology and black studies together. And I just read, I'm reading right now a PhD by Maria Lön called uh, Broken Whiteness. And she was interviewing Russian women in Stockholm, Russian women in St. Petersburg and Russian women in Moscow. Yeah, I really like that PhD, but it, to use phenom phenomenology to understand the levels of whiteness and how uh, she interviews, for example, one Russian woman that says like Swedish blonde and blue eyed women are like class. But me as a Russian woman being bl blonde and blue eyed is trash. Mm -hmm. And um, 
actually like so the writer was also looking for the this woman from the 80s in leopard fur and um she asked about this woman in stockholm among the russian mm. women she, they they pointed like oh no ask in st petersburg yeah. and then when she found this woman in the leopard yeah. fur and uh from the 80s yeah. uh, she said no go to kazakhstan so like this so w- all of this the class signifiers are being exported elsewhere so like a yeah. cycle of of shame or something yeah or but like also who who does that territory belong to and yeah. even the person that it belongs yeah. to is not that person yeah. well and i mean often it's also you know the exact same haircut can mean polar opposite things like there was this moment where you know, in Amsterdam, in the which is an urban cosmopolitan club, where you know, queer haircuts, you know, were all the rage, but they were literally the same as working class haircuts from the nineteen eighties. So there's this also this weird appropriation between class lines mm-hmm. that often happens, and haircuts are signifiers yeah. of many many things, um, but for some reason it often gets yoked to normativity in a way that. Um, I find like um, unfortunate maybe and, oh yeah and sorry and the point being that phenomenology really helps you understand how those circulations of value can be addressed and thereby also possibly interrupted yeah. which is cool yeah or it, you can form a criticality kind of. towards being in groups somehow. maybe no, I agree. Another yeah. another thing that uh, in this PhD that I read was about time and how um, different. I mean, the the West is defining time. So people say in Sweden, people say that Russian people are behind time. So what dictates being behind time, and what what are you behind if you are behind time? Yeah, I I, I find that all that place very interesting because everyone is in the same time, but like. But Russians are behind, even though they're white, they are behind. So they have to somehow fulfill certain standards that they are doomed not to because they lost the Cold War or, or um, they they lost a certain modernity they were vision, envision, visioning and therefore they cannot dictate that time. And therefore you have to make these jokes about Russian women being sluts and all of them being sluts. Um, they are derivative of these imperial time differences you mean exactly but uh-huh. um interesting or th- that's the, the the traces you can find in a contemporary yeah. time and so you can study like the different le- levels of whiteness through phenomenology how do you do that practically well i mean not 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 in in a general sense but like what are what are things that you do to decolonize your whiteness or to de detach yourself from the unearned privileges that it has given you although in your case i can imagine it's also quite complex because you've also become a racialized minority in some sense exactly. as a migrant yeah. to sweden which is a highly socially conservative country yeah M- most people that um uh, become uh, i mean sweden is a white hegemonic uh, place and uh I came when I was three years old to Sweden and my family were all uh, older than me and my brother too and um, I think I internalized my my identity and belonging like all the time until maybe in my like mid-twenties I started to rage and I think mm. um, I mean partly it's a movement 
uh, in Sweden uh, called like this middle place like um, but partly also people are learning to uh, organize on Facebook or creating these groups uh, for example I didn't grow up in a suburb in Stockholm as a as a like first refugee and immigrant I we were me and my family grew up in the north where we were very much segregated from uh, society but not in like not in a suburb among others but actually as a entity of the family itself in many ways and for example right now I'm dealing with exactly that for example in that PhD about the misogyny of Russian women I think I, I experienced a lot of that towards my mother for example because I found her a bit like repressing me because my idea of her being um a Russian feminine being is like I couldn't respect that in because I was a Swedish being and I tried to be a Swedish being and I felt a lot of responsibility towards my family but so I'm kind of reclaiming these ideas and thoughts and um, I'm, I'm also really it's a paradoxical th- process because it's both realizing regrets I mean or maybe embarrassment even like how you how you sort of projected your your torn subjectivity towards your mother, but also maybe enlightening and helpful in the sense that it gives you a new sense of perspective on who did violence to you, mm-hmm. like who abused your integrity as a yeah. person. That's uh, yeah, it's I a mean, it's a painful but necessary process of yeah. self transformation. That in this case you're like you're practicing what you're preaching when it comes to theory and art because you're making a new self guided by these these yardsticks that you know uh, phenomenology mm-hmm. has given you yeah exactly yeah. and i i just find that very easy in a white hegemonic place right. actually um because yeah. it, it becomes these like uh places of hypocrisy of one or the other either or so it's actually kind of like there are other uh, countries and places with other ways of having different political complexities but actually like in a white hegemonic place like netherlands like sweden it's uh, actually very yeah possible and like phenomenology is uh, but possible only in a relative sense because the depressing fact is is that nothing substantially changes or at least it's not a palpable change right i think change whether we like it or not needs time because institutions are incredibly slow um and often do the opposite of what they claim to be doing when it comes to you know uh, decolonizing um whiteness but like in the Netherlands over the past three years for the first time in like two decades public discourse um, was heightened to um, to actually discuss the pains of the colonial heritage of um, deep-seated racism um, conscious and unconscious racism on an individual and institutional level but then the backlash has been so upsetting and depressing um, what was the backlash backlash in many ways right-wing populism um although it has a long prehistory it didn't just come out of nowhere at the turn of the uh, the 21st century um maybe it's a too historical uh, historically complex story to really do justice to here but long story short i think um in the netherlands like the white hegemony the white majority has fallen flat on its ass 
addressing and looking at itself critically. Um, the response instead has been one of deflection. Oh, we cannot be racist. You must be the racist for mm -hmm. pointing out that uh, we might be racist. You know, this sort of the reverse yeah. psychology. And it's pathetic because any everyone except the Dutch um, can see how infantile it really is that sort of refusal to acknowledge and to work through your own problems but yeah that's that's the state that it is in spite of a lot of incredible pioneering work by uh, black women yeah like um, white innocence Gloria Wecker, yeah. um, uh, uh, a former professor at the University of Utrecht has done incredible work um, um, she was uh, also preceded by another incredible scholar Philomena Asset who tried to address similar issues of everyday racism in the 1980s as an anthropologist um, but she basically had to flee the country she couldn't do that academic work here because there was no um, um, there, there was such a level of, of hostility that she had to basically yeah. flee to the United States to carry on that work of addressing and analyzing and reforming institutional racism. So the beacon has been given over. And I also really like what you said before, that ways of organizing on social media has heightened the quality of the debate and the potency of the activism. That is definitely the case in the Netherlands. I mean, I've learned more from my Twitter feed then from, you know, all of my sociology yeah. classes at university, how progressive they might be. Um, because there is urgency here. This mm -hmm. is real lives, real people figuring things out and actually seeing how bad the situation is. Yeah, and like I've been, but also, I mean, I've been an angry feminist since forever and I've considered myself like politically aware and stuff, but the last two years in my uh, master education, I'm uh, reading a lot of black studies and uh, like a lot of US orientated theory around um, slave history and uh, the um, beginning of capitalism through, through looking at slave history. And we also read science fiction r related to like uh, blackness and, and uh, um, hegemonies. And um, through that, uh, I can see now, like in in my in, like in the in hindsight, I can really see how people of color have been trying to to communicate to me, to speak to me f through through their causes or needs. Or I haven't been reading, like seeing the signs or not. Like people can afford not to care. Like, but that is why privilege. Yeah, yeah. that is why privilege. In a nutshell, it's the privilege to not have to think about things that slowly kill others. But that's why we're so fucked. <laughs> but that's why we have to be cancelled. I mean, it's yeah. only like half a joke. It's serious. I think yeah. it is a killing machine that has been up and running for hundreds of years. And it's it's killing the environment. Um, it's killing women. Um, it's killing everybody who's not white yeah um on a scale like and this again like this is why it's it, urgent to do this analysis and keep doing it for you and me it is also knowing our place obviously mm -hmm. um when and when not to speak but i think the work of theory here is really about giving um a sense making palpable the reality of that violence mm -hmm. and how that stretches over people's lives and how it's also killing us i mean yeah. it's 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 yeah no i agree yeah 
what are you reading at the moment? Reading at the moment? Um, yeah, I'm reading this book by a French sociologist called Didier Eribon. Um, it's a book called Returning to Rennes, um, the French city, Rhymes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's this pretty famous, established academic, a sociologist. He wrote an influential biography of Michel Foucault, the French philosopher. And this is an autobiographical sociology, ethnography of his working class um, youth. In broad strokes, it maps his trajectory from a working class gay boy to a middle class uh, respected academic in Paris and how that movement, that upward social mobility of him personally um, required of him that he would demonize um, his working class heritage Mm -hmm. and censor it, uh, hide it, uh, feel shame for it. And this is basically his reckoning with that f- class hatred that exists in France. And it's um, it's beautifully written, very clear. It's very French in a way. Um, and it's nice to see someone who has such a nice, elegant grip on structural language, in this, in this case sociology, um, be so sharp and acute with the personal voice. Yeah. I don't like it as much as I like um, the books by this uh, younger uh, gay French um, writer um, called uh, Edouard Louis. Um, he's like in his early 20s and he's published a few books with similar themes, also reckoning with his working class youth um, as a gay man. Um, there's a bit more poetry and lyricism in his work, um, but then again, it's also he's yeah he's more attractive, so I just like his work more. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I also, I, uh, I got a tip to read this one, returning to Rem, Rem, and actually, it's it's very close to Performance Art Forum, True, like the Saint yeah, um, we've village that we've there, been really close. Yeah. And I was I was in in Performance Art Forum yeah. in December, and then I got the tip for this book. Yeah. So I uh, well, it's good in the sense that it makes very concrete and grounded everything we know theoretically about um, gendered violence, uh, toxic masculinity, yeah. but how it intersects with class and histories of um, uh, c- class um, hatred yeah. um, and um, feelings, affect. Yeah. So that's, I think, something I'd like to do myself in the future as well. Figure out genres of writing that give a place to the first person singular, yeah. but not in a in a narcissistic or indulgent mm-hmm. way actually providing a structural general understanding of how societies um, structure violence because that's what this is about um, in a way that is a, relatable rather than yeah a class so like white people need to be taught good criticality absolutely this is what we absolutely think absolutely yeah and yeah. whiteness and white people we all need to learn that whiteness is a robe and that it is that it is an identity that's what is so weird about the dutch context but i think internationally as well whiteness is not perceived as a racial category um whiteness is perceived as neutral um often as inexistent yeah. and it's only by activating a political awareness of it as a racial category that is um, historically constructed in incredibly perniciously bad ways that you can dissociate from it uh, or uh, destroy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think it is an abolitionist project to abolish whiteness um, and 
you know that that should be channeled through different activist practices i think in the united states currently the prison abolitionism is a leader in what i think is an abolition of whiteness um i think on the largest scale planetary wise it's the uh, abolition of capitalism even though i'm not sure we can still call it capitalism maybe it's something much worse uh, that's something i've taken from mackenzie wark this uh, new york based uh, social theorist he said really i think it's more like a, a bon mot like a, like a f- eternal phrase that he uses often to to emphasize how bad things are but i think he means something like um, the way that finance has disaggregated um, um, units, objects, uh, on such a level that we can no longer really um, think of capitalism as a commodity machine, but much more as a derivative machine um, that hedges risks with other risks and displaces and uh, differentiates risks. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where lies the powers in choreography? Oh, what what is uh, what what made you excited about that rather than other art forms in uh, these times? No, but it, it has qualities that that other art forms does not. Well, I think it's more like a navigator between different mediums, and that is what it's really good at. Like it excels at putting together and contrasting various objects and subjects in containable space although that is increasingly also becoming more uh, malleable uh, with uh, communication technology i think Um, the powers of choreography like in the most general sense is that it rearranges and puts together feelings and bodies in space but i also think that's a boring answer I think the power is the cleverness and the um, originality by by which it puts together dissimilar things. And that's where it gets a lot of its uh, power from. But that brings it quite close to the installation, I think. I think maybe choreographers are just excellent engineers of installations. Or today I enjoy thinking about choreography the most in terms of installation so how it puts together and singularizes whatever Uh, be it you know uh, images sounds gestures feelings um, also in whatever setting although that's more difficult I think Um, black box white cube are still pervasive because they're containable but social choreography is equally interesting maybe more interesting even but it's harder to to track to um to perceive it is less aesthetic um yeah um, you're the choreographer so you should answer this question but Um, how do you think um for example the church had the function of of collecting people in in a room uh, being together for a certain amount of time and uh i mean performance is somehow that um that moment of meeting and the the relationship between like um spectator and uh, uh performer and performers mm, i'm not sure i think it's it's a bad analogy because sovereignty is much less clear in choreography um it's not like a church event i mean okay people gather people see a performance and people change their 
gestures and thoughts accordingly or they adjust them but that's where the similarities end i think i mean you can say that the choreographer has some priest-like function but that's i think i'd rather say that artists and curators have priest-like functions um, and then you're talking about the art industry as a whole i think choreography is much more precarious and interesting because it is not really that um, obviously a market um, that's another great asset of performance-based arts um, mm -hmm. they are events you know they're they're more singular than um than other art forms because most of the time they just happen once and you had to be there and you can't really there's nothing to be sold no even though i mean instagram is adding elements yeah, but that's documentation more things. often than it is part of a performance um at least there are very interesting ways in which you can include documentation in live performance um, like I said, I think uh, communication technologies do interesting things to the choreographic artifice. Um, like earlier this year, no wait, so last summer I saw an update piece by this Amsterdam-based choreographer, Setra Fetai. Um, she's um, a student currently at the DAS uh, Choreography Masters here in Amsterdam. And she did a long-form durational performance of dancing in a closed environment that was simultaneously constantly open because there were um, a dozen or so um, iPads and iPhones with Skype activated um, involving her friends and colleagues from uh, Tehran, Iran. Um, and... Um, um, friends across Europe they were all simultaneously perceiving the performance but it was very hard to decide or to define what was inside and outside of the performance it was very leaky and that was great and interesting and enticing and that was powerful because it put together in a brilliant installation everything that defines our contemporary moment the awkwardness of communication the difficulty in perceiving what is an event um the feeling of togetherness that is tele togetherness right we're together in a hyper mediated sense um but it was also grounded and rooted and humane and down to earth and non-pretentious non-gimmicky choreography gets its power from i think the sharpness and the elegance by which it puts together dissimilar things and yeah like you say it's also about creating publics and changing publics but i'm suspicious of any choreographer that wants to change or that wants to choreograph audiences um, that makes my hairs raise i find that very condescending and patronizing towards spectatorship as if spectators need to be activated um, it's 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 irrelevant to me to presume that you need to do something extra um, but yeah. i am i am very much thinking that like how to exit the subjectivity and that practice and entering a place of sociality even though even though these procedures are happening through a performance like through performance making it's different places in time within performance production but how can you actually build and work with sociality through the usage of performance and choreography um to actually mold ways of being together Choreographic but as i mean uh, i don't know I, d I don't have an answer uh, to how to produce um how to work with a uh, question of sociality uh, in terms of choreography and dance but for example 
you can mold the sociality through creating a certain club or something or not a club but like a a group of people studying together something i mean white people are fucked and they are ignorant and therefore how do we how can how can this problem be addressed but not through like pointing towards that subject that white subjectivity but how can how can we build other ways of being together that are not maintaining individualism like the the abuse of um, mm. identity politics and um, yeah, I mean, the cultivation of subjectivity for sure that's an interesting question but it's, I, I think that it's a different problematic altogether than how does choreography mold sociality I think you should think of this more in terms of provocation and invitation um, expelling I think it's also about not addressing certain publics um, it's also about avoiding the trappings of public identity so you could choose to singularize your audiences whomever comes in you i think should strategize really strongly where and how you exhibit your choreographic choreographic uh, sorry your choreographic artifact um we all know that it is in many places in Northwestern Europe, an elite practice that caters to a very particular crowd. Luckily, that's changing because there are more platforms now to share the kind of choreographic practice that you're involved with and that I'm interested in. So that's good news. But molding sociality, I am just suspicious of. It sounds off to me. It sounds a little bit like... Um, it's a bit nihilistic in the way that... Okay, so like I hate Unlive Young. This American yeah. shock choreographer <laughs> who, in my book, I mean, I've watched interviews. I try to understand if there's a deeper significance to her um, theaters of excess. So she's someone who, you know, like um, has sex, uh, real sex with her performance on the stage, who pukes and shits and pisses over yeah. the audiences, who physically assaults people um, and it's for shock effect yeah I, I worked with her for three weeks she I'm was so, in so SNL. sorry yeah Tragic. I mean I am not the right person for that kind of a job definitely but <laughs> um, I mean people like Unlive Young who think it's their mandate to recreate a theater of cruelty that was urgent and interesting 80 fucking years ago are sociopaths uninteresting and boring they're conservatives because what culture today is obsessed with transgression and it's the most predictable predictable thing to do the the other time i w took some friends to how do you define transgression in this um, place shitting on your audience or wanting your audience to shit themselves mm -hmm. i was reading this interview earlier today on the guardian with wait um this British choreographer called Ned Bennett, um, who literally says in the interview, I want audiences to soil themselves and throw up. And I'm like, what a weird sociopathic Nazi would want to do that. I mean, that makes no sense. Like, what is the significance of that? Do you, the, how can you spin that in some sort of social surplus that is not just cruel? Mm -hmm. Why would people flock to this 
and have that kind of visceral experience. It's one thing to puke or put, you know, uh, video cameras up your own orifices as a choreographer, uh, dancer, performer. It's another thing to implicate your audiences with that as well, especially if it yields no insight, if it doesn't address or problematizes ways of being together. It's nihilistic because it has no point. No. I really enjoy transgression when the terms of the transgression are clear and when it yields insight. Again, I haven't fully figured it out why I hate the theater of transgression in 2019 and why I enjoy cinematic excessiveness and stuff. I think it is in part because of the, the rules of the game that you know what you can expect in a cinema as opposed to the more precarious uncertainties of live theatrical performance. Mm-hmm. But it's, again, like I said before, Artaud's theater of cruelty was urgent 80 years ago because it addressed social conformity and um, rising fascism in Europe. It was a political practice as much as it was, you know, um, a, a, a census-focused um, desire to articulate something through gestures and symbols. Um, in a transgressive way to do that in 2019 where you know politics is defined by transgression where i could have written on an uh, on a on a notepad in detail exactly what kind of transgressive bullshit would happen when i go to whatever choreographic performance in town if you already know that somebody is going to put um, webcams up their orifices as part of the performance what does it address? What does it do? I mean, I have a funny story about the Enlightenment, though. I can yeah. tell you that story. Yeah. So my husband told me that um, some researchers found out that the historical Enlightenment in Europe coincided more or less with the introduction of coffee beans. Um, so that the only way that these dudes could sit still long enough in their ivory towers with their beautiful libraries was because they could concentrate uh, after drinking cups of coffee Um, because the only other beverage available to most European elites at the time was um, alcoholic Um, it was beer Mm -hmm. Um, so that's an interesting trivial fact but I think it's actually much more than trivial I think every age gets its own drug and every age is defined by the drug it prefers And the Enlightenment, so the idea that reason should dictate how the world should develop and how society should organize, was in fact drug-induced. It was just a bunch of dudes who could concentrate longer because they were caffeinated. Thais, do you have an excerpt of something that you would like to share with us? I really like to contribute with some text. Aha, cool. Sure, so you're asking me to read out something theoretical that I'm currently reading. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have this one um, essay that I came across earlier um, by Lauren Berland. She's an American social theorist, excellent practitioner of theory, I would say. Also a great example of someone who uses art to create theory um anyways this is a kind of like a response essay i guess to an argument made by somebody else about love as a political concept um so i will just read one paragraph it's a densely written so i'm not sure if everything gets across in one go but if you're interested the essay is called a properly political concept of love three approaches in 10 pages by lauren berland Um, I'm going to read a 
passage um, where she is in part responding to this other dude who has written about love as a, an answer or an alternative to um, proprietary individualism as a way of organizing politics. Okay, I will start. The option that presents itself is love. I wouldn't do that for love or money means that neither seduction by love or money would provide enough pleasure to balance out the risk of some social action. This suggests that love might already have the power, so far mainly given over to the money form, to provide the kind of pervasive virtual infrastructure in which a mass of people could flourish, imagine mobility optimistically, and seek genuinely to be in relation in real time, making an alive life. Right now, love is a prisoner of that money form's pedagogy of possessiveness, as Marx would say but it could be released into the world when no longer copying property so that we, through our senses, would belong to the world rather than it belonging to us. I've loved that in Marx. I also like the pastoral of self-loss on behalf of non-repetition of the world as it presents itself. Love as a leap of faith to seek the end of our world on behalf of a fantasy. Mostly, people cannot bear too much of a leap, though, and hold on for dear life to toxic anchors, even when they're demanding change. But the revolutionary kernel of the impulse of love, to throw it all over through the leap of coordinating oneself with virtual strangers, and then become, and then to become a part stranger to oneself in the emerging atmosphere of the new relation, cannot be denied. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. And thank you for doing this with me today, Thais. It was yeah. really, really fun. Thank you too, Karina. This and was a great time. Yeah. Yeah. And I love podcasts, so I'm really happy that you're doing them. Which one is your favorite? Oof. Okay, so um, I have several. There's one, it's called uh, Whimsically Volatile. Um, it's an American podcast of one uh, f like semi-famous drag queen, an alumni of RuPaul's Drag Race, who had um, drug issues in her past and is whimsically volatile herself. Um, and she just has a weekly um, co-host um, podcast where she interviews uh, semi-famous people on the gender spectrum. Really funny, irreverent, sharp increasingly boring though i've been listening to it for like half a year so i'm looking for alternatives but yeah as long as it is in podcast or movie form i'm fine with it as an audience you should have the option to not participate in that and if it's not like that then you it's not worth it then you just leave always option to leave you know true i will remember that next time somebody holds a bucket of piss over my head <laughs> when did someone do this <laughs> No, that's Anne Liv Young, no? <laughs> I think she sort of accidentally threw, like, or emptied out a bucket of piss over some sleeping lady in the audience. <laughs> and then uh, she got probably, like, kicked out, I guess. I don't know. I don't care. Why do I say these things? <laughs> we should talk about uplifting things. Yeah, yeah. Happy stuff. Next time. Next, next time. time. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye.